We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nikhami, entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of my very own beauty brand, Carmela Cosmetics, and business consultant. This is We Are Women, Beauty Redefined, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast features different women whose names you probably recognize. You've seen them, been following them, and might even think that they've always had it together. Listen in to hear the women you know and love share their journeys with self-acceptance and self-love, discovering their unique beauty and confidence in a society that for so long has focused on exemplifying a specific beauty standard. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of red and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night and we are women. Beauty Redefined. This episode features Casey Clark, who is a freelance writer from New York City and specializes in beauty, food, lifestyle, and mental health content. I have been following Casey for a while. She's actually featured me in some of her articles that she's written. Her work has been featured in Allure, Bustle, Forbes, Huffington Post, and more. Something that I really appreciate about Casey's work is how she ties in her personal experiences in her writing, whether it's regarding a depressive episode that she's going through, grief and losing her grandfather, or as simple as her experience with a beauty product. During this interview, Casey shares how she found writing as an expression of herself and why she chose writing and being a journalist as her career. She talks about discovering that she struggled with depression and anxiety and how she brings her mental health journey to the internet in a way that she feels comfortable with. She shares how it felt to release something so personal when she wrote about her grandfather and why she shares her journey with her mental health struggles in her articles. Casey shares how she inspires herself on the days that she struggles with her mental health and how she navigates the days that she has depressive episodes. Casey talks about coming to terms with her imperfections, her experience with trichotillomania, a disorder that causes a person to pull out their hair, and how that affects her as a beauty writer without eyelashes. She also offers advice for those who see their loved ones struggling with depression and discusses different ways depression can look from the outside. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Casey kept dropping golden nuggets of information, and I know that you'll learn a lot and be inspired. I was very anxious. I I I grew up a twin, so I always had a built-in best friend. I was very shy, kind of nerdy, always into school. Um... Kind of just like to myself a lot, which is kind of how I found writing, actually. Like I just was like, huh, I can kind of, you know, express myself through, you know, pen and paper and say my words this way instead of having to, you know, actually verbally talk to someone. And I grew up in a really great household with my two parents and my grandfather, and I love them. I still do. And it was really great for me. And I think it kind of led me to where I am today. Wow, that's so interesting. So you grew up with a twin sister. Are you, are you identical? Uh, no, we're fraternal. Okay, very cool. And then your parents and your grandfather lived with you? Mm-hmm. My parents, they yeah, they all three of us lived together. Oh, wow. What was that like? Uh, it was fun. I didn't really know anything different. Like it was kind of just the normal for us to be together. And I didn't know that most people didn't live with their grandparents or their grandparents. So it was kind of just like common practice for me. 
like he would mostly take care of us while my parents were at work and vice versa. So it was kind of just, you know, the normal thing to live with a lot of the family members. So interesting. Okay. So what, what would you say, uh, what, like in regards to, and, and, and you talk about this on your platform and articles, but in regards to the anxiety that you grew up with, was that more nature or would you say it's, it was more nurture for you? I think it's a little bit of both. I feel like my mom was super anxious and still kind of is, but to the degree, the degree that I was growing up was not like nurtured. Like I was just that way. And it's kind of always been like that. I obviously don't remember much like past like middle school. My memory kind of stopped pretty early. But from what I've been told, like I was afraid of everything. I wouldn't leave the house. I'd grow up if I had to leave my parents. Like every like any type of anxiety I had it. I couldn't go in restaurants. I wouldn't leave my house on Sundays. Like it was very, very anxiety provoking, like just whole the whole living thing, even when I was younger. So wow. So so how have you like worked through that? So initially I just thought it was normal and I was just over worried that, you know, everyone else was just like dealing with it in their own way. And I was just, you know, struggling with it, but it wasn't until like high school ish that I was like, Hmm, I don't think this is like, right. Like, I don't think I should be, you know, fearing leaving the house every week or like every day even. So I was like, huh, maybe I should, you know, try to seek help. So I saw a therapist and that was, it was nice. It kind of helped a little bit. I don't think the modality was for me at the time, but just like talk to someone about it and like, be like, oh, there's actually a clinical diagnosis for why you're so anxious all the time. Like that was helpful for me to hear as like an intellectual who wants to understand things. And then I did more therapy for several years and I was like, it's helpful. But then I was like, it's still there very much so. So I decided to take like the leap to medication and I'm still on medication now. I don't know if I could say it works or benefits me. It's definitely helps relieve the physical symptoms of my anxiety, like the quivering, the rapid heart beat, the sweating, the shaking, all of that stuff. Like I don't have that anymore, like at all, luckily. But like for the actual anxiety part, it's still very much there, just not as manifested physically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting because now it's become more of a thing that people are talking about mental health challenges and someone like you who has influence because the media media is power right Mm -hmm. um it's it's really amazing how you're able to influence others to not only influence but just show support and educate about anxiety and other mental health challenges definitely that's kind of one of the things I've been trying to use my platform for like yes I'm a shopping beauty writer but like on the other side of the coin I like to be real and kind of authentic and like the best way I can online like nothing's really super authentic online but try to be more transparent than not and like sharing my story and like my struggles and everything I think is important like it's easy to see like oh you get all these mailers you write all this you interview all these people like you must have it so great and easy no, it's not all like butterflies and rainbows. It's very much not that like 90% of the time. So I try to, you know, bring that to the internet in a way I feel comfortable with. Right. Is that, is that hard to do? Like, is it hard, is it hard to bring it in a way that you're 
you're comfortable with. You know what I mean? That balance um, seems. It was at first. I was like, oh my gosh, what are people going to think? Mostly like people I know in like real life, like your family and your friends, you would think you'd be the opposite. Like, oh, they would, you know, they wouldn't think anything. You should be more afraid of like what strangers would think. But for some reason, you care more about what others who you know think about what you do. So that was a little like hurdle. But once I did it, I was like, hmm, okay, this is cool. Um, and I just kind of didn't stop. And the editors that I was working with that kind of saw like the transparency and like personal essays do well and stuff. So I was like, might as well write about it and see what comes of it. So, yeah, yeah. Speaking of personal essays, you wrote a beautiful article about your grandfather. Mm -hmm. So how did that feel to release something so personal and then get the feedback? Because I know that you got a tremendous amount of feedback on that. Yeah, so I wrote two articles about him. One is older. It's about Michael Buble and his music. And then the more recent one was about like a disorder I was diagnosed with for like complex grief. There's a longer name, but I'm forgetting it right now. But essentially it's like you, you're grieving for longer than the traditional person would grieve, even though there's really no standard, but you know, everything is, you know, labeled and categorized now. But I was really excited to write it. I actually had something similar drafted from when I was in college, just in like a Google Doc of like a similar essay. So I was like, let me pull this out and like, you know, edit it now because it's been five years and, you know, write about filling the gaps and what's been missing and what's new to like the grief space for me. And I really liked it. I got some negative comments on it. Like, you know, not everything should be a diagnosis and blah, blah, blah which is fair, which is true. I'm also not one to say everything is a problem, but in some way, having a diagnosis can be like, oh, this is what, you know, is going on or these are other people have this too. So it's like, can be helpful in that regard as well. For sure. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like on the one hand, having a diagnosis for something really gives you that validation. And you know that it's like putting a name to something it's like oh that's what's been going on oh that's what's you know so it's like first of all you could get help for whatever is going on because you know you could mm. diagnose it but on the other hand it could get a little stressful especially when we're constantly be, like diagnoses are constantly being thrown at us you know what I mean mm. that's also a balance yeah there's definitely a balancing act between like you know, not being your diagnosis and like, you know, over identifying with it and then just like existing with something. Um, for me, I personally, I don't mind like being it. Like I kind of categorize myself as like a depressed person. Like it's fine. <laughs> um, like it's kind of what it is. And like, I'm not going to say, oh no, it's not that. Or people are like, no, no, you're not. And like, I am. That's the reality of the situation. It's okay. Like there's kind of like you come to peace with it. Like, in a weird way, which is, I know I find helpful, because I'm not going to lie and say nothing is wrong. So, right. Also, I love that you said that because it also shows how you can be a successful and fulfilled person, even when you are struggling with mental health challenges. Yes, definitely. I think that's something I'm still trying to come to terms with. Like a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, what you do is amazing considering, you know, your circumstances and whatever, which I mean, from an outsider perspective, yes. I personally don't think I'm not, I'm never doing enough, but that's like an inner battle that I think a lot of people face. But yeah, I do think I can function at a level that, you know, can help me be productive and successful. 
But also that's, you know, run by my OCD, which is another mental illness that kind of drives me. So it's kind of a loop, like it all kind of just works together in a weird way. So it works for me, but. Right. It's also interesting that you said um, that for the, like, for what you're going through, you're, you are successful, but it's actually like people would look at you and say, even someone who does, has zero mental health challenges, they would say that you're total, you're so successful, even, you know what I mean? So it's, it's interesting that the perspective that, that you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not giving yourself enough credit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I <laughs> definitely don't do that often. Like, I just kind of think, you know, it's kind of what I do. Like, I've worked really hard, like, through COVID. I was in college when COVID happened. So I was just home and grinding and, you know, going to school and studying and interning and all of this stuff. And I kind of just, like, work at something. Like, I'm very gritty and I will not stop until something happens. So it kind of just lends itself to that. Like, I'm not getting handed these opportunities. Like, I've actively sought them out and, you know, persistently followed up and, like, tried to put myself in the best light. Like, they're just not coming to me. Like, it's just, you know, you have to work for what you want, even though it doesn't always look like that, especially online. For mostly anybody, it's like, oh, you know, they just get it because they know someone or this or that. No, like, I didn't know anybody. Um, I just kind of cold emailed and did the thing all about myself. So. Wow, good for you. Yeah, you're right. It does take a lot of energy and effort. And you know, it's funny. I always say, like, no, most people, even the self-made people, they're not actually self-made. Yeah. Because we all need other people, right? So someone has given you a chance. Yeah, that, totally. I agree with that. I because you can't really you're you're self-made to where you reached out to them and like right. took that step. But someone had to have given you a chance to get, you know, get a platform or do something you wouldn't have done otherwise, which is like what, you know, boosted you up to do other opportunities. So I totally agree with that. It's something like we all kind of help each other. Like I was at a conference, like a video conference once and this, you know, influencer, she was like, yeah, we cross pollinate. Like you help me, I help you. And then it kind of like benefits both of us. And then you move up and then you go up and up and up. And it's like kind of the same thing. Yeah. By the way, that's literally, I was thinking about it the other day, like that's life, even with business and the media, right? Because you need people to write about and we need to be written about people to write about us. And well, we don't, I mean, it depends which avenue you choose, but if you choose the PR avenue, like everybody needs, like even celebrities, right? If they're not in the media, they're done. So like they need you and you need them, but it's a partnership at the end of the day, everyone needs each other. And that's what we're here for as human beings to literally lift each other up. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think it's hard to forget that like in the, like I'm more of a commerce person, like in the shopping space, it's hard for it to feel like transactional and not as personal, which I mean, it is, it's about selling products and stuff at the end of the day. But if you put like a personal spin on something, like you're actually trying something in it, you really like it or it helped your skin clear or your hair, you know, be less knotty or dry or damaged. You can kind of like, make it more personal and like actually help a brand while also being authentic, which is something I try to practice a lot in my career and my writing. Like I get sent a lot of, a lot of stuff, but not everything is good. Not everything is bad. Some things are amazing. Some things I can't get enough of and other things I'm like, hmm, I don't really need that. But the things that I'm going to like, I'm going to support the brand because I like it. And they were nice enough to send me something and 
who want to try it out. So like, why not do that? Like, that's kind of how it is supposed to be. Like, there's no malintent. It's just kind of all love. Right. By the way, I, I do love how you how I've noticed that that your style is that you often write an article. It's not just about promote, promoting the product or service. You'll write about your experience using it. And that's the promotion story about you using the products. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's like you can say, oh, this mascara is great or this you know, blush really makes your cheeks you know, rosy. But does it actually like did it really work on your complexion? Did it you know, was it too much? Was it too little? Like, those are all things that people want to know. And there's tons of like, oh, buy this, buy that. Like, if we're not Amazon, we're like actual people trying these things, like giving like real testimonial to them. Whereas like, you know, shopping and like an an advertisement, you're just saying this is great. Like, there's no negative to it, which is not true. There's negatives to almost everything. Of course. Yeah. You know, open about that is like, part of the job but you also try to do that in a way that's not going to totally diminish a brand or something like that at least I do like if something's bad I either just won't write about it or I'll say like what's you know troublesome or worrisome about it but I'm not in the market to like really bash someone and like let them lose their career or their brand it's like not what it's about right right yeah you're an ethical human being so yeah (laughs) for sure um so how did you get into writing, by the way? I mean, I, I know that you initially said that you started writing as a form of just your thoughts and putting it out there, but how, how did you actually decide that's going to be your career and, and, and what did you do? So when I was around 12, I started a YouTube channel where I interviewed on red carpets. I, me and my sister, we went to award shows and TV sets and all of the type of Hollywood things. And we interviewed celebrities when we were like children. Um, I interviewed Sean Mendez and Adam Lambert and with Harmony at the time, like a lot of big names. And I was just doing it for fun, like no money, just because I liked it. And I wanted to meet celebrities and, you know, go see concerts and all of the fun stuff. And then as I got older, like towards high school, we still did it. We did it for 10 years until we cut it. But we had like over 700 interviews and did multiple red carpets. And I was like, hmm, if I can make a you know, living off of this, that would be cool. And I realized I didn't really like the on-camera stuff as much or like the in-person interaction as much as the writing. So I zoned that out and then just started doing like online writing stuff. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Very cool. Yeah. And and where where does the inspiration and creativity for your articles come from? Um, I think a lot of it comes from my experiences. I grew up in New York City. I have a twin. I have like a, you know, pretty traditional family. I also have like, I'm also queer. So I kind of draw on that in my stuff and have mental health issues and kind of bring all of that together and stuff that's not really traditionally talked about. And then try to package that in a way that people are going to want to read about, not just your typical like, oh, this is my boyfriend and we're dating. Like, Like, I want something to be meaningful and like, something you haven't heard before because the internet's full of stories. There's tons of them. Like I, I write so many and so do my friends and my colleagues, but like you want it to be personal and unique. Like it has to have something authentic that's going to resonate or it's just going to like go to the back of, you know, Google. Yeah. Right. For sure. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sensing the theme here, you know, and I see that cause I follow you and I read your stuff. So I see how 
how everything, it does have that personal touch and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Because that's the way, I mean, honestly, that that's the way that you, that you stand out because that no one can be you. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but it's true. Like you're mm-hmm. right. It's your superpower. That's you, who you are. So when you take, you could be a marketing like example, literally, because when you're taking your own experiences and writing about that, no one could copy that. Yeah. It's very unique to like, I guess for me and my experience is unique to me, but it could also be unique to you and like whatever you think or what, you, how you've grown up, like it all shapes kind of your perspective. Yeah. You know, you know, goes into your writing and your style. Yeah. By the way, what are your favorite types of articles to write? Because I know that you write about e-commerce, travel, wellness, mental health, beauty. So um, my favorite types of articles to do are like shopping stories, like testing lipsticks and gift guides and roundups like that, like on different new product releases and different types of news like that. But like my favorite stories to write, like personally, are more like personal essays and like explainers on different mental health conditions and stuff that actually like matters. It's not like lipstick don't matter, but they don't matter in the same way that, you know, depression or anxiety matters. And not many people are willing to talk about that or go to that extent, especially on the internet where tons of people can see it. So me being like, hmm, I'm going to be one of the few people like that will do it. You know, that kind of motivates me in a different way than writing a gift guide that anyone could really write if they know how. So I like doing those a lot too. Right. Right. That's so nice. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's cool that you could also write a variety of different types of articles because that, that's also more unique. Yeah. That's, I try not to limit myself. Like I've been told you need, you need a niche, like you need to, you know, narrow down what you're doing. Like, mostly from like a money standpoint, like if you're an expert in something, you'll get paid more to write about it. Yes, that's probably true. But at the same time, I don't really want to limit myself right now. Like I'm still young. I just turned 23. So I'm still trying to you know, figure out what I really want to do and like what path I want to go down. Because I didn't start doing like parenting and travel stories initially. I kind of was open to that and started doing that. So if I would have closed myself off as a beauty writer, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So like kind of having an open space to me to explore what I want to do and like not keep it so tight knit because that would just kind of bother me just to write about the same things over and over and over again, which sometimes I do, but like you have, you kind of, that's like any job you do the same things, but at least having the option to be, you know, to expand your horizons is something I really enjoy and take pride in. For sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Going back to the mental health topic for a minute. How do you inspire yourself on the days that you do struggle with your mental health? Um, short answer, I don't. Uh, I kind of just let it happen and I'll try to take a shower and eat and sleep. Those are kind of, maybe I'll go outside if I like am feeling up to it. But for me, I just kind of normally sit with it and I'm like, this is, it'll go away at some point, whether or not it does like sooner rather than later, that's up to it. But I kind of just work with it instead of against it. Like in the past, I'd always try to like actively like go against it be like, nope, this isn't going to happen today. And that just wouldn't end well because I'd still feel pretty bad. And while I was actively trying and that would get me upset. So now I'm just like, I'm just going to be upset and that's okay. Um, 
it's not going to be a very good day, but it's, you know, it is what it is. So I also have like more of a cynical attitude in that regard. Like I'm not one of those like false optimistic people. I'm like, this is how it is. I'm going to be upset for today. And, you know, until it goes away, but you know, I'll make it through somehow as I've made it through like every year of my life so far. So how do you, how do you deal with it when you have deadlines? Oh, that's a challenge. I am actually like in the middle of a depressive episode, like this week has been really bad and I've had tons of deadlines. Luckily I can still like work through it because I have OCD and my OCD is work driven. So that doesn't stop even if I'm depressed. So I can still work not as effectively or quickly, but I can still work. Um, so I kind of say that's like a blessing in disguise a little bit. Like I can still work even though I'm depressed because of my other mental illness. But it's not like a innate motivation. It's just kind of happening. But I some days I just like cannot function or I'll just be like, I'm not working today. And lucky, luckily I have the luxury of to do that as a freelancer. I can kind of like put it down and say, no, I'm not doing that. Um, but sometimes if there's a deadline that like I know I'm not going to make it, I'll usually be honest and be like, I'm not going to make this today. Like, I apologize. Like, can we do it tomorrow or push you back a few days? Because I'd rather be honest and turn in something that's not quality because that's not what I'd want just for the sake of meeting a deadline. It'll put the editors out trying to fix it and make it good. And I don't want to give in something that I didn't put my whole effort into. So I think just being open and honest about what's going on. Like in most of the editors, like nearly all of them have been, you know, really accepting of that type of thing. Like, can I get a few days extra? Or, you know, can we push it back to later in the day? I think they know things come up and like, I'm working on different, like six different stories at the same time. So it's like likely that they're going to shift it and move around with like day-to-day life. So yeah, just being honest and open has helped me with that. Yeah, I love that. That's a good lesson also because, you know, we're always trying to just like pretend everything's fine and Mm -hmm. we feel so bad. Like, oh my gosh, we can't, it's fine that we're going to have a nervous breakdown, but we have this meeting that we can't cancel or we can't, you know, um, push off 15 minutes or whatever. And then we end up hurting ourselves. So it manifests within, with either we crash after, or we um, have a might get a migraine or, or, you know, whatever happens to us where we really could have just been honest and human to human and say like, listen, it's been, I, I just need 15 minutes or I just need another day, right. For you or whatever it is like, um, and, and I feel like we, we don't, cause we have this, this idea of perfection. That's- yeah. I think I agree with that. Like everyone's trying to, you know, we all think we have to do what we planned, like there's no, no going back. If it's on the schedule, it is there. Like the meeting is happening no matter what, which I mean, in most cases, yes. Cause you know, you value people's right, time. Of course. Be respectful. But like, if something actually comes up, like a meeting is not worth, you know, your mental or physical health, like, or work period. Um, it's just not worth it. Even though our society like thinks it is like, you have to like learn how to prioritize like what you like you versus your job, which is something I struggle with a lot. I'm like, I'm just going to power through it and finish my work. And I'm my own boss. So I have no one like telling me what to do. I just, you know, need to get it done. But I can't even imagine people like in the corporate world, like they have someone, you know, at them all the time saying, you have to do this. You have to meet this goal. You have to submit this on time, reach out to this person, do that, do that. Like, but at what, what expense, like to get a paycheck? Yes, that's important. But 
but you also need to take care of yourself too. 100%. Yeah, no, I love that you said that at what expense, because that's literally the question you have to ask yourself. And again, like, as you said, valuing people's time, of course, you know, you don't want to be disrespectful to people, but at the same time, you have to value yourself. Mm -hmm. And like, even, you know, before, well, because you mentioned about the um, depressive episodes, that's why I'm saying it. And also I would never say this, but um, before, when we were talking, you asked if we could possibly postpone it and this interview. And I said that we could, but then you came back and said, yeah, we had it scheduled for a while. So like, I'm like, it's like not really in my character issue, but obviously if there was like an emergency, I'd be like, we have to reschedule. It's fine. Right. But right. We had something, you know, set up. I was looking forward to doing it. Like, it's probably better for me to, you know, do something anyway. So let's just stick with it and see what happens. So. Right. But I would like, if it would have been an episode where you really like were laying in bed and you were just like, you could not move and, you know, you were paralyzed, like emotionally. And like, I, I would be like, you know, of course you, that's something that only you would know, you know, you only. <laughs> So it's, it's, I, I totally agree with you that I think that, that it is something that we have to figure out, like when, when, when situations hit us, you know, at what expense are we doing this? Um, sometimes it's a lesson for next time, you know, we have to do it and we know that we're going to suffer the consequences, but next time we're not going to plan, you know, to have five meetings back to back. Yeah. That's very interesting. You say that because when I lived in New York, I did like that with a lot of in-person events. I would book my schedule from like 10 to 6 p.m. Just event, 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 like back to back, which is fun in theory, but actually having to go to each event, sit there and, you know, they're fun. Most of them are fun and interesting. You get to meet other people. But as someone who has like bad social anxiety and I don't really know many people because I don't work in an office, it's very anxiety provoking and intimidating and draining to try to put yourself out there every time because usually like other people know someone else there I, I don't so I'm just like well I'm a freelancer you know like we work for you know xyz I'm like cool I kind of do too but not in the same regard but yeah the media events kind of follow that too like you have to plan like your schedule very wisely that's something I've learned I don't go to a lot of those anymore because I feel like they don't serve me mentally I'll go to them. I'm actually going back to New York for one in like three days, but it's like one. I haven't gone to them in months. I go to virtual ones because those are more my speed, but figuring out how to make it work for you instead of like the other way around is like super important, especially for me. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, right now we live in, in, in a society that's so in a way, very self-centered. You know what I mean? It's always like, does this serve me? Does, is this really, you know, helping me. And, and I, I think it's funny because you, you just use that once that line once um, in a very healthy way, obviously. Um, but I, I do feel like people have taken it to like the next level a little bit. Yeah. I think there's obviously some give and take in whatever you do. Like, I'm not going to want to go to, go to it. Like for events, for instance, I'm not going to want to go all the time, but will I, because you know, they're hosting an event and they want people to show up. Yes. Like that's, you know, courtesy is part of the job. But like, there's a way to balance that and juggle that in a way that's not going to drain you completely. So you can keep doing that. Like, it's not just like, mm, if it doesn't serve me, I'm not doing it. <laughs> like, no, that's then nothing would get done if everyone said that. So you kind of have to, you know, see what, what actually really doesn't serve you in the long run versus like, if this doesn't you know, serve me today, so be it. 
But over time, you got to see what's most important and what's really going to, you know, fill your cup versus really drain your battery. Yeah, totally, totally. And not hurt other people in the process because it doesn't like serve you, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You've spoken about a condition that you have that relates to to pulling out your hair. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the condition is called trichotillomania. It's a hair pulling condition where people pull out hair, whether it's from their scalp or their eyebrows or eyelashes or basically hair anywhere on your body. They say it's like a like an anxiety, like a form of anxiety that people do. It's like biting your nails. Like that's a category of it. Not trichotillomania per se, but that's like the same type of behavior. It's like an involuntary like like impulse to do it. And for me, I started you know, I pulled my eyelashes out more specifically when I was eight. I started doing that like early, like in elementary school and I've had it ever since. So that's like what 15 years. So it's been a long while with that. Luckily my case isn't as severe as other people that I know, but that's also because I've had treatment for it. So it's not as bad. And I work actively to try to, you know, control the impulses or, you know, do whatever I can to make it less bad when it does happen. But as a, I wrote a story about this a few weeks, a few months ago, rather about being a beauty writer that doesn't have eyelashes. Cause I'm always being sent products and like things like that to try. And it's like, there's a standard of beauty that you're supposed to have, which is like, oh, you have, you know, um, brows that are on fleek and nice eyelashes and really done hair and your makeup's laid and everything's like really, you know, to the T and Instagram ready. But I'm just not that like, I'm just, I just don't have that. So sometimes I'll be like, huh, am I really like a beauty writer? Like if I don't, you know, have this one, you know, aspect of beauty that, you know, people say or society said you need, like, obviously I don't think that anymore. Like, I'm just like, I just don't, it's fine. But, you know, when I was younger, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm not as pretty, like I'm ugly, like no one's going to want to talk to me because I'm weird and whatever. But as you get older, and I guess if you come to terms with it, you're just like, mm, this is a part of me. Like if someone's not going to talk to me because of it, do I really want to talk to them anyway? So you kind of grow into it. Yeah, that's such a great point about, and that applies to so many things in life. Even, you know, when you were sharing earlier about being nervous to write about certain topics relating to your mental health because of friends and family, we get so concerned about what other people are going to think about us, but mm-hmm. you're totally right. Because if they are going to have negative thoughts regarding something that, that we talk about, whether for you it's writing, for me it could be just sharing, whatever, you know, um, then we don't want those people in our life. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah, and I think there's, it's that. And then there's not a lot of like trichotillomania representation in the media. Like people can't even say the word, which I mean, I don't blame them. It's a long and look funny looking word. But like, you know, people need to talk about these things that not other, like a lot of people do, which is kind of why I talk about it, like through my stories and grief and things, things that are taboo in society that I can shine a light on in a way that I know how and can do without being like inauthentic. Like you could easily have someone else write about grief who's not experiencing, you know, intense grief, but like, is that really authentic? Is that going to be super helpful? Probably not. But someone who has experience and has emotion behind it, they can put more of their own perspective and voice into it, which will probably resonate more, which will end up, you know, getting more views and clicks and people wanting to engage with the content. So I think that's 
like what I like and how it's better for me. For sure. Yeah. So how did you discover that you had trichotillomania? I, I don't remember specifically. I remember I was in elementary school about, well, I know I was in elementary school and I was in the cafeteria with, I didn't have any friends. So I would talk to the parents of the other kids, you know, so I would talk to this guy's mom and he was like, sweetie, you have no eyelash. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, like, are you crazy? And then I was like, oh my God, she's right. Like, and I was like, oh my gosh, like what's going on? Like, cause I didn't know. Cause um, it usually, at least for most people, it starts out like involuntarily. So you don't know that it's happening. And then you realize once it's over, but I guess for me, I never really thought twice about it until she brought it to my attention. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then eventually once it got to a point where it's like, there's a point of no return, my, you know, my parents obviously noticed and they were like, hmm, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. Like, and they were like, do you like, do you want to talk to someone about it? And at that age, I was like, no, I really don't. Like nothing's wrong with me. It's fine. Like, you know, whatever. Because like in my head, like the psychologist word had psycho in it. And I was like, I'm not psycho if I see a psycho. Like I was making those, you know, assumptions and correlations that obviously aren't accurate. But at the time you're like, no, I don't want to. Right. Not but I went to see a therapist back then for it. I saw her like twice and I was like, this is not going to work for my eight-year-old brain. Like it's just not going to help. So I let it go for a while. And, you know, I just lived with it as I lived with it. But it definitely like a part of the condition is how it interact like interferes with the rest of your life. Like a lot of people who don't have, you know, hair or certain, you know, eyebrows, eyelashes, whatever, they're afraid to talk to people because it's like but for me for a while it was like not making eye to- eye contact because I was afraid someone would be like, Oh my gosh, like what happened to your eyelash? Like, granted, that does happen like relatively often. But like back then I'd be like paralyzed if they asked that question. Whereas now I'm just like, Yeah, I have a condition. Um, you wanna see? Like I'm more open about it now than I was back then. But, you know, some people, if they don't have hair, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't leave the house. Like, and then that kind of feeds the anxiety, which fuels the pulling, which kind of makes it a never ending cycle. So it's very hard to get out of. And I'm still not out of it. I'm very much in it, but I'm more accepting of it because that kind of helps me to be like, well, yes, I have this condition and I can work, you know, as best as I can to manage it and, you know, do what I can. But Obviously, I'm going to relapse, which happens often, but it's kind of how you bounce back from that instead of just like beating yourself up about it because you're not purposely doing it to yourself. It's just, you know, happening. So it's whether or not you, you know, sit there with those judgments that can make it a lot harder. For sure. So is the treatment for that like the same treatment that you would that that you're getting for anxiety and general mental health? So from my like experience, like the treatment, there is no like treatment it's like usually anxiety based and like behavioral like techniques like you know recognize the impulse and then do something with your hands or like eat something take a nap and then see what happens or like acknowledge it and try to distract yourself they're more like behavioral techniques than actual like treatment modalities interesting Uh, there's more like serums and hair products now that people use but that's more to promote like hair growth instead of like actually treating the impulse i guess where I haven't found one that's been particularly like, you know, a hundred percent I'm free of this condition. I don't think most people with trichotillomania will have that. At least, I mean, I was for a while, like there was a span where I was like, I had a full set of lashes, like 
it was like normal. And then I relapsed again and it hasn't been the same. But like it it varies on like what works for you. Like there's a like be it like it's called a body focused repetitive behavior. Like that's like the category of conditions that it falls under. It's like picking your nails, like picking your skin. A lot of people do that, but many don't think twice about it because it's so normalized. Whereas like hair pulling is like a little more like, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? But it's all like under the same thing. Right. Like on the dumbest level, people would probably be like, it doesn't hurt like that hurt. Like (laughs) (laughs) And that's like, that's a common question. Does it hurt? Like, why do you do that? Can't you just stop? Like it's, it's not, it's like asking someone who bites their nails, like just stop. Like you, you can't, it's like a habit. Um, like obviously you have to pay attention to it and be mindful of it, but it's different than, you know, yes, it does hurt at some points and not for people who've done it for a long time. It doesn't hurt. So like you could see why they'd ask that question. Like I understand why I'd be like, Oh my gosh, doesn't that hurt? Like it's, it's like logic that, you know, pulling out your hair would hurt and it does initially, but then you kind of get used to it like everything else. Yeah. It's like tweezing your eyebrows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we're so used to it. You know, guys look at us like, how are you doing that? And it's like, whatever the, the, the men that don't, you know what I mean? And yeah. we're like, Oh, did, we didn't, we don't think twice about it. Like my brothers will like, you know, pass by and when we're home together and I'll be doing my eyebrow and they're like, doesn't that hurt? I'm like, no, it really doesn't. Like I've been doing this for the past like two decades, you know, but yeah. um, yeah. Okay. Let's go back to what you wrote about your grandfather and the idea of grief. I would love for you to share your experience. And this is an experience, by the way, that I just want to say that so many of us have experienced on different levels. I could tell you that when my own grandfather passed away, I remember it was looking back, especially I did not function well at all for a period of time. And we were very close. He was like a second father to me. And um, so when you talk about grief, it's so relatable. And and I'd love for you to expound, expound on that now. Sure. Yeah. I lost my grandfather. Well, I had two grandfathers. They both died within months of each other. Um, I lost my grandfather who lived with me when I was in a freshman in college, like two months after I started college. So that was like a journey in itself, you know, going transitioning to this new life stage and then realizing that, oh no, like someone, a pivotal figure in my life is dying. Um, because things were normal and it kind of happened very quickly. So I didn't have much like of a buffer time to, you know, really, you know, I, I got to say everything. Like I have no like regrets, like I have closure, which I think is really great for me because not everyone gets that. But I got the call when I was in class and my parents were like, you have to come home. Like now, luckily I was only an hour away from where I lived. So I could get home really quickly and, you know, see him before he passed. But that happened like very close to Thanksgiving, like almost like two days before and he passed away and we still had like Thanksgiving as normal like all my relatives were there and like it was almost like nothing happened like my my grandfather lived in our basement so he passed away and then you know we were eating mac and cheese and mashed potatoes like two days later like talking and watching the parade like like the room is just you know like he's down there like nothing happened like that's kind of a I think like don't tell like don't talk about it like if you didn't don't mention it it's not you know, going to come to fruition, even though it already did. And, you know, at the time I was just kind of numb. So I was like, mm, like uh, it, they can go functioning, go, go about their lives the way that's best for them. Cause obviously that's how they're coping with it. They don't want to acknowledge it. 
I'm going to, you know, put on a front because you kind of have to in that time. It's weird. Like you just experience something so traumatic, but yet you're have to put on this front for like with wake in the funeral and like interacting with everybody and like saying, oh, it's fine. Like, so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it, like those only help so much. But yeah, he was like, I wouldn't say a best friend, but he was like, he was like my dad, like very, he was very much parental figure in my life. He watched me. He grew up with me. I took care of him like at the end when he was like sicker. Um, and when he passed away, it was very hard and it's still very hard. Yeah. So how do you, how do you work through the times when you feel that grief strongly? I think he always wanted me to work. So I, I work a lot in like his honor, I guess. Like he always wanted me to make sure I was secure and like an independent woman and like being able to support myself financially. Like he didn't want me to have to rely on like at the time, a man, I told him I was gay later on, but like, he's like, you don't need any man to support you. Like the whole sentiment was there, which was still important. Like you don't want to have to rely on someone else to, you know, take care of yourself. So I work a lot in his, like, in his honor also because I'm just, I like to work. Um, I talk about him a lot, like to other people. And he actually was featured in the New York Times as like, they wrote a feature about him. So I'm like, one of my goals is to be in the New York Times to go like full circle with that. Oh uh, yeah. And yeah, I just kind of talk about him a lot and like keep his memory alive. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's also so important. You know, a lot of people when they're going through depressive episodes or times of grief, whatever it is, and I'm not saying that this is the wrong thing to do if this is what you need, but very often we just like tune out of life. And just like stop and, you know, like what's a typical like scene in your mind when you think of someone who's depressed, right? You think of them laying in bed, which often happens and needs to happen for those people. I am not <laughs> negating that, but I'm say, but from what I'm hearing from you, that there are also times where you can use things that you're passionate about and other action, actionable steps to work through, not not we're not saying overcome necessarily all the time. It's not always about overcoming, but work through and do something that that you're passionate about and that makes you happy, so that you can be that full like fulfilled person at the, at, at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I always, like I tell myself there's room for like both versions of me. Like this week, I've been pretty much like the bedridden, like quote unquote depressed person that most people think of because that's how it is when right. it's really bad like there's no going around that but like on the days where I can find a little bit of energy and zest to like take a shower or you know write a story it kind of like in therapy there's like a technique it's called opposite action like you do the opposite of how you're feeling um but like it's hard when you have no motivation to do anything but like just taking a shower or getting up or writing an introductory paragraph or something like I'm like great I did that um now I can either stop or keep going. And for me, I'll keep going because I want to finish and be done. But, you know, it's hard and you have to just kind of leave room for those days where you can't function. And then those days where you have a little bit of zest, you got to pack it in there. That's like how I like to think about it. And like, there's no wrong way to be like depressed. I think that's like a thing that a lot of people think like, oh, you don't look depressed. You're, you know, you work every day. You you know, you can talk, you can function, you can, you know, make dinner, like you brush your teeth and your hair and like you can take care of yourself. Like 
Luckily, I can. I'm in that state where I can do that. But not there's some things I can't. And there's some people who can't do that at all. Like, it's just different for everybody. And it's kind of hard, like, at least for people who don't have clinical depression, for them to be like, oh, you know, see, XYZ has depression. So you should act more like them. Like, it's not, it's not like that. Like, how come you don't lay in bed like, you know, some other depressed person does? It, it's different. How you experience it is totally different. Right, right. And, and that, that's such a great point. And going along that, that thought process, I guess, I would say it's also important not to say to someone else, like, no, it's not possible that you have that because you don't act like so-and-so. Or like from what I know, because you don't know. You don't know how they're feeling. You don't know how they're like they're internally reacting. You don't like you just don't know. So, um, it's it's very important. You're right. Like there's there's no wrong and right way to to be depressed. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's kind of why I like to do like my job because I can kind of you know in the stories where I can be like authentic, I'm like it's not all you know press trips and mailers. Like I have depression and sometimes it's hard to find the energy to work even though like a lot of people in my life, they don't have the job that I have. They're like, how can you possibly be upset when, you know, all of this, you get to do all these cool things and do, you know, whatever. Like, it's very cool. And I don't, I don't take it for granted ever really. Like I always think of it, I'm like, damn, like this is so cool. Like I almost wish I could be more present because it would, you know, make it 10 times better. But everyone has their own like set of challenges in their line of work and in their life period. So just learning how to like, you know, navigate and pivot with those and then not compare to what someone else is going through, especially online, is very important. Yeah, totally. Well, you've offered some really great pearls of wisdom and tangible ideas. Seriously. You've given a lot of great tangible advice for people who are going through mental health challenges, but what advice would you give? to people who see their friends and family and loved ones struggling with mental health challenges? Uh, That's a hard one because sometimes I, my family, they'll ask me, what can I do to best support you? And my go-to impulse, I don't know. Like, but that's not, that's not what they're going for. They want to help you. I think the best thing to do, at least for me, is like give them space. Like if they say they're depressed, like, a knee-jerk reaction be like are you okay do you want to hang out do you want to go grab coffee do you want to do you want to do all these things to try to get your mind off it um no like I don't I just want to like know someone's hearing me like actively listening to someone is probably like the best thing you can do because in that moment when someone's really down and depressed they want to know that like they're being seen like they don't want to be like oh she's depressed but you know let's go get coffee like that's kind of negating the fact that they're, you know, not feeling well, but actually listening and trying to understand, even though you can't really understand, but kind of understanding that you don't understand, like making that known that like, I don't know what you're going through. And I couldn't even begin to imagine, you know, what pain you must be in. You could experience something similar, but it's not identical to what the person's experiencing. So trying to make that known to them. And like, I would say that like my parents are really good about this. Like now after having, you know, having had these conversations, but like, like, I don't know what you're going through. I can't even imagine what you're going through, but you know, you're doing the best you can. And it's like, you're, we're proud of you and doing all these things. Like you just have to take it with like a grain of salt. Like people are trying their hardest and don't 
overtry. Like it's, if you like do it too much, it's like overkill. And you're just like, stop. Like it's not authentic and you can sense it. Whereas if someone's like genuinely caring for you, they'll they'll make it known. Like one of my things I like live by is like actions speak louder than words. Like if someone cares about you, they'll check in on you. They'll see how you're doing. They'll want to know how you're doing. And if someone doesn't, you're going to have to go after them. And then do they really care about you? Probably not. Like they'll make an effort. Like if they wanted to, they would. And the people who will do are the ones that care. And you'll know who those people are. There's probably, I would say like three or four that I have who really check in on me and like care about me at my core, like that aren't really my family. But having those people who aren't related to you, but still care about you can be very helpful. Yeah. I, yeah, I especially love what you said about when people say to you that your parents, when your parents say to you that they can't understand what you're going through, that part is so important because there's nothing more annoying, irritating, or even like, I won't use the word because we try to keep this clean, uh, you know, on this podcast, but like when you, when you, you need to acknowledge that you don't know what someone's going through because you really don't even if the struggle seems identical or the same or whatever, or you, your best friend went through that for years, whatever, like you don't know unless if you're that person. So that's great. That's great advice. If you had one message to give over to the next generation of women, what would that message be? There is such a thing as working too hard. I don't think that's something I realize until I say this, like I'm super aged and have lots of wisdom, <laughs> but when I was in high school and college, I really like worked myself like to the, you know, in the needle to really get good grades and do everything, which is good. Like you want to get good grades and you want to be successful in what you do. But like there is a point where it's like it's not worth it. Like it's not worth putting your mental health out, your physical health, your social life, like anything that is not work or like achievement related. It's just not worth it to lose that in order to like get a valid, an external validation on something. And it might seem like at the time, like, you know, this test is the most important thing in the world or this job interview is like, you know, going to make or break my life. It's, it's not, um, there's other things out there. Like when you, when you die at your funeral, people are going to be like, Oh, she works for Oprah. Oh, she, you know, she got an A in chemistry. Nobody's going to say that because it doesn't matter. What they're going to say is like, you know, she spent her time doing this. She was a good friend. She was a good listener. You know, all of the things that actually matter versus like what people think matters, especially when you're younger. So like, I guess this is more geared towards like younger, like young adults, like emerging women is like, don't work too hard and don't take it too seriously. Like you can be serious about something. Some things are, you know, important, but not everything is super important. Yeah. I mean. I 100% agree with you. I love that. And I actually think that that does apply to everyone because I think we all have things that we take too seriously and we work too hard, you know, <laughs> using your language that really we shouldn't be. We could just like take a breath and like let it flow, you know? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, like the world's going to, you know, keep spinning. It's like nothing's <laughs> going to happen. Um, I mean, it could affect, you know, your life on a personal level. But in the grand scheme of things, like 10 years down the road, you're not even going to remember what happened, like what you were so worried about. And I feel like I wasted a lot of time in my, my youth doing that. So that would probably be my 
biggest message. Yeah. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. Like Casey, where can people find you if they want to follow your work, learn more about you and see what you're up to? So I have an Instagram. It's Casey.ClarkNYC. I have a WordPress website. It's Casey'sCursor.WordPress.com. I'm not really too active on there. It's just my writing samples and stuff, but you can get that on my Instagram. And my Twitter is Casey's Cursor. I try to be active on that, but probably not as much as I should be. But I'm always on Instagram. So if you want to shoot me a message, like if anything I said resonated with you, or you have any questions about writing or mental health or anything like that, I'm open. I respond to nearly everything. So yeah, just re- feel free to reach out. Okay, great. And we're going to link all that in the show notes, by the way. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Casey, today. This was so wonderful. Thank you for having me. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 